23andMe's Health Plus Ancestry Kit is a personalized tool for understanding how your genes may influence your health. Start the year by learning more about your DNA. Go to 23andMe.com fool to get $30 off each Health Plus Ancestry Kit, now through January 31st. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Friday, January 19th, and we're getting some updates from our boots on the ground at CES. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined in studio by David Kretzman. Oh, yes. Nice to have you here. Hey, it's great to be here, Dylan. Nice to have you back, I guess. I, I survived Vegas. I'm glad I'm, I'm still in one piece, but man, it's a lot colder here. Our, our listeners are glad that you survived, so you could give us your dispatches from the Consumer Electronics Show. Um, before we get into that discussion, though, You've had some role changes here at The Fool since the last time I've had you on the show. What are you up to these days? Yeah, I recently switched over to our Motley Fool Canada team, and we're just launching a brand new service in Canada called Hidden Gems Canada. So it's kind of a flavor of small cap investing, rule breaker style investing. Each month we'll be recommending a Canadian company and a US company that kind of fits the bill on that small cap growth kind of orientation. So should be a fun product. Uh, if you're interested in checking it out, it's fool.ca slash hidden gems. You can see uh, kind of what we're working with there. And you guys were at CES to kind of get a sense of some of these new fresh technologies, maybe some companies that are making some early investments in them, what that might look like for them, right? Yeah, absolutely. CES is a nice chance to get a sense for some emerging technologies and trends. And also, as we'll talk about, maybe some technologies and trends that have been overhyped and might be dwindling a bit. And just trying to get a sense for that whole landscape, particularly within tech and where the world might be headed over the next three, five years and beyond, and where we should be paying attention as investors to benefit. And you outlined your takeaways. I think it was like an eight-tweet, 15-point thread that you put together on Twitter. Uh, if people want that, you are at David underscore Kretzman, right? That's right. Yeah. Two, two ends. Two ends, not three. <laughs> yep. um, and I know you spent some time on Tuesday's episode of Market Foolery talking about your experience at CES with Chris Hill. Um, we did our best to kind of divvy up the portions of the takeaways that we thought were interesting. I think maybe some more bullish stuff going on on that Foolery episode. We're going to talk about maybe some trends that were absent or underrepresented today. Yeah, this one will be a little bit more of a downer, but hey, it's Friday, so we have the weekend to uh, look forward to. We have that to look forward to. Um, so, <laughs> I think the first thing I want to talk about with you is looking at Fitbit in the wearable space. And really, with everything that we're going to be talking about today, in at least the first half of the show, we're going to be looking at trends that were really big tech trends a couple of years ago and kind of where they are now and what happened between those to this point where you know uh, a Fitbit almost had <laughs> zero presence right at CES yeah Fitbit was still there but on the actual floor itself I didn't even see a booth that they had and compared to the past year or two uh, th this was a third year in a row that I've been at CES compared to the past year or two they had a much heavier presence where they had a big booth they were displaying their their products uh, really hyping up everything within that wearable space and I think another company that was completely absent, they didn't even have a private meeting room or anything this year, was Under Armour. And compare that to last year, when not only did they have a massive booth, and they brought in Michael Phelps and a lot of their star athletes, their, their sponsored athletes, Kevin Plank also delivered the final keynote uh, at CES last year. And that keynote was almost entirely talking about that connected fitness category and you know the three acquisitions they had made within that connected app, connected fitness space. So the fact that Under Armour went from delivering the keynote, being the star of the show, having this star-studded display, 
to no presence at all at CES, I think really tells you what's happening in that category. I think there was a 12-month period where, or maybe even like a four-month period, where Kevin Plank was basically on the conference circuit because he was at CES and then he was a keynote at South by Southwest as well when I where I was in Austin. Oh wow, didn't and, know that. And I remember the same the same thing where I was like, wow, this is big for them. Like they, they are seeing these acquisitions as kind of big growth levers for Under Armour, and. <laughs> to see them not even be there now, you're like, oof, this has not really been working out for them. Yeah, certainly. And we've seen that story played out uh, over the course of 2017. I didn't realize that they were also at South by Southwest. I actually might remember hearing uh, one of your podcast appearances talking about that. But it wasn't uh, much longer after South by Southwest. I think it was in, in the summer of 2017 when they started to write, write off some of those acquisitions that they made because they spent over $700 million acquiring, acquiring three of these connected fitness apps. So they're finally doing a Mia Culpa saying, oops, we, we might have overpaid for that. We're going to start writing that off. Uh, they've had a lot of leadership changes. And finally, you see Kevin Plank, someone who is obviously incredibly confident uh, and, and a very powerful founder and CEO. Basically admitting that okay, we we made some mistakes and we need to to change gears a bit. So they're still in a little bit of a mini turnaround stage, but man, they, they made a huge bet on connective fitness that so far seems to be a bit of a blunder. Not really clear how they're going to make money uh, with those connective fitness apps. Then I think that extends to Fitbit as well, where these devices just kind of wear off of people. Like you might buy one of these fitness trackers and use it for a couple months, but there's not it's not much of a repeat business. There's not a really a reason that people keep going to these fitness trackers. And then the people who really do like these fitness trackers, why wouldn't you just go with an Apple Watch? Which typically, obviously, it's Apple, so it has that going for it. But it also the the latest version of the Apple Watch. It has the the GPS tracker built in. It has uh, mobile data built in. It's just a in general a better device than a lot of these other. Um, Trackers that are out there, and it's Apple. And yeah, with the when you have Apple backing something, particularly on the software side, you have that app developer community as well, right? So functionality is just going to be a lot more robust with an Apple device than something that has a much smaller developer community. Absolutely, and and it's kind of uh, puzzled me over the past couple of years because people will point to the Apple Watch as being a flop or not doing as well as it could, but they're comparing that to the iPhone, but. The, the Apple Watch still has over 50% share of the smartwatch category. So, pretty much by any definition, it's been an incredible success. And that's just a very tough competitive beast to go up against when you're a Fitbit or an Under Armour. Companies that, that really are just making these one off devices that don't really keep uh, consumers coming back for more in the same way that Apple app ecosystem does. And you think about also just the the presence of companies at CES, right? Looking at the wearable space, thinking about hardware manufacturers. You know, there's Fitbit, but you look at Jawbone. You know, this is a company that existed and is now in liquidation, selling off you know most of their assets. And Pebble sold itself to Fitbit. So of some of the other pure play companies in that space that had a decent uh, size to them, decent chunk of the market. You know, two of them aren't there anymore, so it kind of stands to reason that you're not going to see as much of that at CES. Yeah, consumer electronics is just a brutally competitive space. It's a very tough space to build some sort of long-term competitive advantage. And I think, I mean, Apple is obviously the crown jewel when you see a company that keeps people coming back for more. They're raising the prices on the iPhones. They're launching new devices, and people are just stuck within this software and app ecosystem. And I think if you're a Fitbit or a GoPro or some of these latest uh, consumer tech companies, you really have to, I think, look at Garmin as uh, 
an example of what could go wrong, where your main product, whether it's a camera or a fitness tracker, tracker becomes not just a product, but just a feature of, of a device like an iPhone. And I think that's really what happened with Garmin, where they dominated GPS trackers uh, in the 2000s. The, the company and the stock did very well. But eventually, the GPS tracker was just integrated into virtually every device, and, and they lose that competitive advantage. And I think we're seeing something similar happen with Fitbit, where that fitness tracker will just become a default feature in your iPhone or your smartwatch, and you don't necessarily need Fitbit for that feature. Another category, kind of similar to uh, Kevin Plank's Mia Culpa, where they said, you know, we got a little overly ambitious and maybe uh, saw a little bit more opportunity than there actually was. You know, you think about that maybe on the consumer side and on the investor side with 3D printing and people thinking about what this market might look like and then having to come to the realization over the past couple of years that either it's going to take a while or maybe it's not quite as big as people expected. What were your takeaways on 3D printing from CES? Yeah, there, there was very little presence of 3D printing. You had a few booths, but most of the 3D printing booths that were there, they're still just basically printing tchotchkes, like stuff that you're not really going to need, maybe little figurines or little utensils, but nothing that's really groundbreaking, certainly on a consumer level. 3D printing, I think, has bigger applications today and it has in the past with manufacturing or commercial uses. So if you're you know, in a factory or some larger scale manufacturing facility, a 3D print printer can make sense. But within, I guess it was about three years ago, we had uh, Matt Argersinger and some other fools out at CES, and that's when 3D printing was the dominant theme at CES. And Matt, to his credit, was basically scratching his head, thinking, you know, I think this this could be a top. And almost, you know, to the week, it, it turned out to be the peak of Stratasys and 3D Systems, which for a year or two, the stocks had just been on an absolute tear. This year, 3D Systems and Stratasys didn't even have a booth signed up at CES or a private meeting room. So that kind of tells you again what's happening in that category. Yeah, I think uh, both of those stocks are trading about 80% down from where they were in their peaks in 2014. Very painful. And I know a lot of fools follow that company, follow those companies, so it's got to be kind of tough. Um, philosophically, thinking about the 3D printing space, what is the better way to approach it? Because I think there were these thoughts at some point that. Everyone will have a 3D printer in their house, right? Like that was like the illogical extreme that things got taken to. What is more realistically how people should be thinking about the space? What does that look like? Yeah, I, I think we're still a ways off from from a time where, where there's really a consumer need or desire for a 3D printer. Because I mean, several years ago, you had people making some serious arguments that Amazon should be worried or that Amazon could be disrupted in a few years because if every every consumer just had a 3D printer in their house. They upload the software for or, or the dimensions for whatever product they want, and they just print it out in their home. Like, what what role does Amazon play in that world? I think that's a ways off if it even happens. But it, I think the the opportunity, similar to what I, I said earlier, is is in that commercial or manufacturing space because I think that's where you're seeing companies make continue to make orders uh, and and build a market for 3D printers. So I would focus on. I mean, even 3D systems or Stratasys, those those are companies that haven't followed as closely lately, but I think they are shifting more toward that manufacturing side of the equation rather than the consumer market with things like MakerBot. And you have a company like Proto Labs, which um, they're not completely a 3D 
printing company. They do more rapid prototyping. So they're a company. If if you're an inventor developing a product, uh, you can basically send the design to Proto Labs. They'll make a, just a small batch of prototypes for you and ship it out. So they have some similarities with 3D printing. That was a company that was really dragged down the past couple of years, along with the rest of the 3D printing space. But since since then, the stock has had a huge resurgence, and I think it's at all time highs now. So I would focus more on companies on that end of the spectrum, and not so much companies going after the consumer market, because I just think that's a ways off. We're going to take a quick break here to remind listeners that this episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by 23andMe. 23andMe's Health Plus Ancestry Kit is a personalized tool for understanding how your genes could influence your health. Send in a small saliva sample, and you'll receive more than 75 online reports on topics like lactose intolerance, genetic weight, and how your genes may impact your risk for certain diseases. Start the year by learning more about your DNA. Go to 23andMe.com fool to get $30 off each Health Plus Ancestry Kit, now through January 31st. Okay, so David, we have been downers so far, and and that is really not what CES is about. You know, I wanted to kind of take a fun alternate take uh, a little bit on the on the expo, but there were some bright spots here at CES, specifically mobile payments. This is a, a space that has been blowing up. You know, people that have been following PayPal, for instance, have seen firsthand uh, just what the market opportunity looks like here. You noted that Alibaba's presence in mobile payments, in particular. Was really just something that stood out to you. Yeah, I think if you're interested in the mobile payment space, there's obviously a lot of companies based in the US like PayPal, MasterCard, Visa that are all benefiting in some shape or form from this transition to digital or mobile payments. But you really have to pay attention to what's happening in China. One stat I just pulled up in 2016, total mobile payments in China totaled $5.5 trillion. In the U.S., it was just 112 billion. So the the Chinese mobile payments volume is more than 50 times what we see in the U.S. Wow. And, a, and a big driver of that is Alibaba. So just some stats that they had. They, Alibaba had a big booth this year, and among other things, they were showcasing just what what they're doing with Alipay, which is really their mobile or digital payments offshoot. Alipay now has over uh, 520 million active users. Over 10 million brick and mortar merchants now accept Alipay, and that's really become a primary payment method, not just for digital payments, but for payments in general in China. Uh, their real time risk identification takes 100 milliseconds per transaction on Singles Day, which is November 11th, 11 11. That's sort of a, that's a, a big shopping holiday uh, in China that was created by Alibaba. Um, the payment processing capacity of Alipay reached 256,000 transactions per second. So they've just really nailed down this uh, mobile and digital payments platform, and the, the numbers that they threw out there were just staggering. So anyone interested in mobile payments, pay attention to what uh, Alibaba and Tencent especially are doing over in China. I'm curious. You said that Alibaba had <clears throat> this fairly large booth. Uh, at CES, what does showing off mobile payments actually look like? Because that is not a consumer electronics device <laughs> that you can just kind of throw in front of someone and have them be amused with. Yeah, they, they really just had some futuristic looking screens that kept just like spitting out these different stats and stuff. So I just snapped a couple pictures because, like, man, that's really impressive what, what, what they're doing. So, yeah, their whole booth, because they were showcasing a lot of different stuff, just the, the breadth of the Alibaba retail platform, which is really impressive. They had their voice assistants and smart 
smart homes, very similar to the Echo. Uh, Alibaba really has an identical device to that. They have their own voice assistant, uh, and then they have this mobile payments futuristic screen, just you know the cool graphics, and then some of these different stats that they're throwing out. All right, David, two fun questions for you before we wrap up. Uh, in my opinion, CES can be kind of known for tech for tech for tech's sake, if you will. You know, kind of the idea that we're going to innovate and kind of ask questions later, or we're going to kind of apply some very futuristic or buzz tech type things to standard devices like smart refrigerators, things like that. Um, there isn't always a direct consumer market for some of the innovation that happens there. Is there anything that you saw this year at CES where you're like? Nobody's buying this. Someone sunk a lot of money into it, but nobody's buying it. Yeah, I, I mentioned some of this uh, to Chris on Market Foolery earlier this week, but within robotics, there's some stuff that's really cool, but then there's some where it just seems like the tech, I don't know, it's misguided or it just really needs uh, a lot further to go. And that's primarily with these like general purpose robots. So it seems like they're, they're robots that are supposed to be built to just follow you around and help you with a lot of different tasks, but it seems like they're just poorly constructed, and they don't do any one thing well. They just do a lot of things in a mediocre way. So, it's really almost just being followed around with a kind of a 2012 tablet that you can tap in and play some games and stuff, but it, that's really all it does. So, I'm, I could see a future down the road where we do have multi-purpose or general-purpose robots that can follow us around through the home and help us with with a lot of different tasks in our lives. But there were a lot of these robots that were just, you know, dancing in different configurations and stuff. And I'm just thinking, I don't know if there's a clear need for that. And I think that tech still uh, has a ways to go. And there are also uh, autonomous suitcases. So these are suitcases <laughs> that you don't need to pull. And they're supposed to just follow you around. But I, I just feel like there's a lot that, that could go wrong with that. And again, the tech just seemed like it need, needed a ways to go. How does that work? Do you have like a token in your pocket that it tries to stay within five feet of or something like that? I think it's tethered by Bluetooth. So you hook it up to your phone or smartwatch and then it just knows to stay within five feet of you. But I don't know if you're if you're you know running to a flight or something. I don't know if the if the suitcase can keep up with you. I just think there's a lot of things that could go wrong at that point. Twenty years from now, though, we're going to be seeing the rom com where someone is doing that like last minute dash through the airport and they're followed ten feet behind them by a suitcase, right? Oh, it, it, absolutely. <laughs> and when I mentioned this to Chris Hill, he was saying, "Well, it, will will I be able to have you know a suitcase?" In the, in the shape of BB-8 or R2-D2. And I was thinking, you know, that's actually brilliant. And that, that would be something I might actually buy. So, you could have your own personal R2-D2 following you around the airport. That would be pretty awesome. Personally, I'm rooting for people to figure out autonomous driving before we get to autonomous luggage. There are certain things that I'm okay carrying around. Yeah, you know, I, I feel like dragging luggage you know, on wheels isn't that big of a pain point. There are bigger issues to solve, so I agree. Autonomous driving, let's get that done first, then we can move on to the suitcases. One last thing before I let you go, David. Looking at your Twitter feed, Right now, it is a veritable who's who of who is promoting a book at the moment. Uh, you met with a ton of authors while you were at CES. Anyone in particular that's had something that really caught your attention? Yeah, there there were several, and uh, definitely check out my Twitter. There there are some uh, some highlights there, and hopefully we'll be posting some of those uh, interviews on full.com or elsewhere, and I'll be sharing those out on on Twitter as we get them. Uh, 
Some interesting ones were Steve Miller. He's a business consultant. Uh, he's written numerous books, and his latest is Uncopyable. So, just talking about how companies in today's day and age, it's so fast paced, uh, a lot of different competition, how companies can carve out what, what he calls an unfair advantage or essentially a competitive advantage. So, we, we spent a good amount of time uh, talking about that. And I thought an interesting point that he made. Um, I asked him about Starbucks. Like, how, how do you rank Starbucks on the scale of you know having an unfair advantage? And he said, you know, if I was a competitor going up against Starbucks, I wouldn't try to make better coffee. I would try to be a better third place because uh, he thinks that Starbucks' advantage isn't so much the coffee or the service. It's really creating that third place that Howard Schultz was really uh, plugging. Uh, so I thought, you know, that that's just an interesting way to look at. Of the business landscape and how companies can create uh, an advantage. So the third place there that you're talking about is there's the home, the office, and then the third place. Not, exactly. not third place in the market share. Sense. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for clarifying that. Yeah. That, that that's important. Uh, then yeah, talk to Ross Baird. He's a venture capitalist actually based uh, here in D.C. and he's talking about how um, the the investing community today is really overlooking a lot of different places like the the majority of venture capital money is allocated to three states Massachusetts California and what is the other one uh, Massachusetts and California sounds right. I mean, you yeah, have maybe Valley. New York. Yeah, yeah. So, so essentially, three three cities are getting the vast majority of, of VC money. Then, obviously, uh, the, the majority of entrepreneurs getting those money. That money tends to be white males. So he, he's basically calling it the the innovators' blind spot, the the innovation uh, blind spot, and how investors can kind of overcome those biases and find opportunities where a lot of you know traditional VC or investing money uh, is. is overlooking. Awesome. Well, thanks for hopping on today, David. Oh, glad to be here, Dylan. Thank you. Listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or if you just want to reach out and say, hey, you can shoot us an email over at industryfocus at fool.com or you can tweet us at mfindustryfocus. Listeners, today is actually Austin Morgan's three-year fool anniversary. so if you want to shoot him a congratulations, just shoot us a note too and we'll make sure that he sees that. If you're looking for more of our stuff, you can subscribe on iTunes or check out the Fool's family of shows over at fool.com slash podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. For David and Austin, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! Fool on!